0: Today we're going to be in 2 Peter 3, and while you're turning there, we saw last time that there was a pretty heavy portion of scripture uh, regarding salvation and our responsibility in that relationship. And in any relationship, it shouldn't come as a surprise, there is a responsibility. If you're married, you have a responsibility to your relationship to your spouse. If you have children, you have a responsibility to care for those children and communicate with them, and if you have parents... You also have a responsibility. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible is going to at times explain to us that we do have a responsibility to God and what that means. And we saw a major accountability in teaching God's precepts. And today we're going to finish up Second Peter uh, and really try to understand as we read it, this is the apostle's last words, really his last uh, major public address before his death and his concern for the sheep, for the Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman world. So let's jump in verse 1 He says beloved I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying quote, where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So scoffers in the last days. Now, don't let that word trip you up, because really, when Jesus Christ came into the world and interrupted human history, uh, and then he, you know, died, was uh, crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, time is getting short. Right? There was a major interruption of human history. So, in those days, they knew that they were the times of the end, and we'll talk about what that time frame means. But even today, we know there are scoffers, and we do need to be stirred up. And that word means to arouse and to awake fully. A lot of Christians, especially in in wealthy nations, are kind of asleep. They're a little drowsy. They're not paying attention to what's going on in the world. They're not serious about wanting to bring others who don't know the Lord to show them the love of God and to bring them into the kingdom. So this is important back then and today. And he says, I want to stir you up via remembrance. Remembrance of what? Hey, guys, don't forget your denominationalism. Don't forget your church history. Don't forget to put the thermometers on the lawn. None of that stuff is in there. What we're supposed to remember is God's word from the Old Testament and the prophets and through the church uh, established by the apostles. Remember, in John 14, Jesus divides the world into two camps. He goes, if you love me, you'll follow my word. If you don't love me, you won't. It's that simple. Right down the center. You're either falling to one or two camps. Now, how will we know if we're following his word if we don't know enough of his word to know if we're following it? It's kind of simple logic. How can a follower of Christ be a follower of Christ if they're not following Christ? So a lot of this stuff is, listen, even for the most simple-minded people, the gospel is very easy to understand. But there was a disease coming down the road, and it was already there. It was the disease of the false doctrine, of the scoffers, and those that wanted to turn the faith into something it was never intended. And Peter's job right now really is inoculating them from that disease, so they would be immune from it. Unfortunately, a lot of the false doctrine was coming from those posing as Christian leaders. Pastor Anthony had the, uh, and I I couldn't go, he had the opportunity to see Chuck Swindoll uh, live recently this week, and he calls me up afterwards and he goes, Joe, Joe, you won't believe it. Everything you've been preaching on, this guy said. I'm like, that's really cool. There's not just one crazy person preaching this stuff. But the bottom line is, we need to be awake. We need to be as sober-minded as believers and not go through life oblivious to the things that are around us. And Peter says this, they will do it because they're walking according to their own lusts. They're turning their faith, turning the faith or trying to, into something that fits their lifestyle and their desires. I mean, it's not good to have, you know, I mean, it's difficult when we get attacked from the world. But it's worse when those from the inside, it's more tragic, are watering down the gospel and what God desires. But they will do it according to their own lusts. They'll even, listen, we know that there are those that listen to messages and they'll go from church to church until they find the church where it's nice and watered down so it doesn't convict their lifestyle. Well, the same happens to the teachers, to those who teach the word. Listen, I teach this stuff. I become convicted from what I'm teaching. It's not easy, you know what I'm saying? But there are some that don't want that conviction. They don't want to change. So they will teach according to their own lusts and desires. Verse 4, they will mock. Where is the promise of his coming? Mocking the fundamentals of the faith because God's taking too long. And this is really a, a term called uniformitarianism. And this is what some of the folks believed back then. That, you know, my whole life has kind of been the same. I haven't really seen any uh, the Red Sea parting. Uh, life is just going to go on after I die as it's gone on for this long. That's uniformitarianism. And Paul's, or Peter is saying absolutely not. But really, the, the crux and the, the core of this is to, be, is to change your viewpoint because you feel that God is taking too long. Now, what do we know of those in the Bible that have really messed up when they thought God was taking too long? When Moses was up on the mountain with God, and Aaron and the children of Israel were waiting and waiting, and they felt that you know, God was taking too long with Moses, what, what has become of this man? What did they do? The high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, helped them to fashion a golden calf and to worship that calf because God was taking too long. What about King Saul when he was waiting for Samuel to return and the Philistines were mustering up an attack? You know, King Saul was getting concerned. God is taking too long with Samuel. I've got to take matters into my own hands and I have to offer the sacrifice which was profane to God. And scoffers will also set up a faith and a God in their own image because they believe that the Lord is taking too long. Now get this. When we believe that God is taking too long, we tend to do things prematurely. Right? We t- tend to do things prematurely. It can hurt us and bring nothing but heartache. And we've all been there. I know I've been there. You know, you think you've got to kind of help God along a little bit on this one. You're waiting, you're praying, and he didn't give you an answer the next day, so it's time to take matters into your own hands. He said, I've been there. Verse 5. For this they willfully forget that the word of God, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So, Four truths that we're going to touch on in these next few verses about God's creation that the scoffers willfully forget. Number one, by his word, God spoke creation into existence. He has the power to do that. By his word, the heavens have been here from of old. And then, of course, the creation that we live on, that we live in as we know it. Verse 5, the second truth, that water was involved in the formation of the earth. In the Greek, it's ex hudatas kai di hudatas, right? Out of the water and really through the water, in the water but through the water. We know that we as humans are comprised of roughly 70% water and the creation had to have water involved in it to support life, the way God had designed it. Now, if you just look up the word hydrosphere, you know, you go to your science book or the dictionary. The word hydrosphere tells us that there's water on the planet, under the planet, in aquifers. If you've, I have a well at home and you, you dig far enough, you're going to hit water. And there's water in the cloud covering. So there's water really everywhere on the surface of the earth. And Genesis, when we go into that, is pretty fascinating. It tells us that there was really like a canopy, a sphere of water around the earth. And then when the flood came, the, the great waters from, from the the uh, outer perimeter, and the great fountains of the deep came up and probably changed the face of the earth as we know it. It is a good possibility before the flood that you could see more land. Now it's the, the, water, the earth is mostly covered by water. So that's very interesting to study. Verse 6, the third truth, that water was involved in flooding the earth. When scientists look at the Grand Canyon, they see erosion. And we know that water is the universal solvent. So only two things could have happened when water, believe it or not, has the power to erode a rock and give it enough water or enough time, it'll whittle it down to practically nothing. Very impressive. And it seems so docile too. It's pretty fascinating to think about water. But two things could have happened when we look at the earth, either you know, you, you look at even from outer space when they, uh, the first space flight was, was up in orbit. They took pictures of the land where they thought creation might have happened, the Genesis account. And they found two riverbeds that you could only see from, from, the, um, from an aerial view that have been dried up. But it's interesting that the Bible talks about the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Gishon, and the, the Pishon, and the Gihon. And those two other tributaries don't exist anymore, but when you go out in space, you can see the remnants of those heads of the river. Very, very impressive. But two things can happen. Number one, over millions and millions of years and some water, you can have erosions. Or over not that much time, but a great force and velocity and volume of water passing through, you can get the same thing done when it comes to erosion. Now you see, the evolutionists have to add a bunch of zeros next to their timetable. You know, because we know that even recorded human history is several thousand years old. Uh, You can go back to the Egyptians and and different cultures, and we know that there has been historical data on man on the earth. So because in the thousands of years uh, we can't see what the evolutionists are claiming, they have to put a whole bunch of more zeros on there because now it seems more plausible. Given enough time, an apple can turn into an orange. Anything can happen over millions and millions of years. You see, that's where they really go with this. Secular scientists will say that the earth looks like there were, could be thousands of local floods, but they'll stop short of saying one great deluge because they know where that's going to lead. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there. And here's another thing. What you don't see in the English is the sequence of this, these words here. He speaks about um, the earth standing out of water. The world that was then there was perished, being flooded the, with the water. But the heavens and earth are now kept in store by the same word reserved for fire and judgment. If you look at those words, there's two Greek words. There's ge for the uh, simple soil of the earth. And then there's cosmos. Now, cosmos is, is uh, majority-wise used, when God so loved the world. So when God sees the object of his affection as human beings, the word world is used. However, there are other times where the word ye is used, which is really a picture of the earth, but without the inhabitants, the soil. And that's very important. Because when people are perishing, cosmos is used. And when you're just talking about the sterility of the soil being flooded, ye is used. And that's important. Because in John 3.16, it said, God so loved the world. He didn't love the soil. He loved the world. That's very important. Verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So we come to the fourth truth, by the same word that God has used to start creation, to just speak things into existence. The same prior interruptions in creation, he'll start to do it again. So we see it in the past, and we're going to see it in the future. There will be an all-encompassing fire, as we read further, that will destroy everything that's cursed by sin to make way for the new heavens and the new earth. And we covered that in our Revelation study. Now, I just want to go back to verse 5 for a moment and pick something out of here. It says that the scoffers willfully forget. They didn't have um, a a remembrance problem. They didn't need ginkgo biloba to revive their memory. The problem was, was they willfully forgot. And I I coined the term desire-based theology. A lot of willful ignorance when it comes to those with a Christian label. Now, I will say this, that uh, I got a great statistic when Pastor Anthony and, and, and Paul went to the, uh, the uh, breakfast to see Chuck Swindoll. He gave a statistic that said of those that call themselves born-again Christians, only 8% admit to reading their Bible regularly. That's pretty, that's pretty stunning. See, it goes right back to what Peter said. We're forgetting. If we're not reading our Bibles, we're going to be influenced by the culture. It's going to be a tug of war war in terms of influence. Peter says, remember, remember God's word, and remember that it may mean, number one, sacrifice. You see, sometimes maybe subconsciously, we don't want to read God's word because there's conviction in there. And when I read God's word and I look at it, it's really like a mirror to my soul. It shows me where I'm blemished, where I need to fix things. So number one, when we read God's word it could mean sacrifice. If you're really following the Lord, I will tell you that it involves sacrifice. And the second thing that it may show us is that maybe we're not putting in that great of an effort. It may show that about ourselves. And the third thing, which is really relevant to what Peter's saying, is that we can bend to the culture. And when we read God's word, we can see, wow, I'm really starting to look like the world. What is the difference between me and the unsaved world? I don't see much of a difference. So it it brings conviction. And that's why Peter is speaking to these believers because he's going to die soon. And he needs them to not send a flowery letter, but something that's going to keep them on the right track. And we certainly need to hear that today. Verse 8. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In these three verses, there's a lot here to chew on and we're going to try to break it down. Number one, the Lord's timetable is not my timetable. His timetable is better than my timetable. And and we'll admit that certainly the Lord is much more patient than we are, far more patient than I am. He will come back. He will interrupt human history, and it kind of explains a little bit about how it's going to occur. Now, just about the time concept again, uh, in Psalm 90, verse 4, It says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. So according to that, it's only been to God about two days since the resurrection, right? When we look at human history, we look at the Romans, we look at the, you know, all these different people groups that came after the resurrection. We look at the the Renaissance age and the, the age of the Europeans and all this kind of stuff. We're like, wow, that was a long time ago, but to God... Almost like two days to him, so that's one thing that we have to get straight: is that we don't have the same timetables. He's outside of time, which is very, very hard to understand. But he put us in a universe where we we work within the framework of time, but he's actually not in that time. He's outside of it, and we do know that in Peter's first letter, in chapter one, he said God's election is according to His foreknowledge. He knows the end from the beginning, and again, that causes us difficulty sometimes. If you meditate on it, you kind of twist your brain in a knot a little bit, trying to figure out the whole outside of time and, and all that kind of stuff. How he see how he sees things all at the same time. And one of the biggest challenges I believe as believers is that is to wait on God. Remember, we live in a society with fast food, with online shopping. You know, when I order uh, different things from my beehives because now I got to take care of them because the winter's coming. All I got to do is get on the computer within 2 minutes. I'm getting pretty good at it. I can order their little their little insulation for their hives and their feeders and you know, click, put in my credit card number and boom, it's out to cyberspace. Two, 2 2 days later, if I want express mail, it's only like 30 bucks, which I don't do to save money, but I can have that thing there the next day. That's crazy. You can have something from any part of the world there within a day or two. So this is the society we live in. We want drive-through trials. We want Happy Meal trials. You know? Listen, if i got to go through a trial, I want to learn it quickly. I want to grow. I want my character to be built. And by the next day, I want to be out of it. Ooh, you know what I'm saying? Crazy. Sort of like saying to God, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Brothers and sisters, I've had to say to some of you, and believe me, I pray and I I try to find the best counsel that I could give you, but there's times that, and and I almost feel apprehensive to say it, brother, in this situation, you need to wait. What do you mean I need to wait? Can't you tell me something that's going to help me get through? No, I can't. Right now, God has got you in a position, sister, where you have to wait. That's just, look, I could tell you everything it says in the Bible and your situation, you need to wait on the Lord here. That doesn't mean that we can't make decisions, but it does mean that when we're really in a pickle, sometimes God is doing something. And sometimes it's another person's free will that's keeping us in that situation. So, you know, consider that. Now, I will tell you this, I'm guilty too. I, I, can't, be, I can't be sick. You know, I'm too busy to be sick. I can't break a bone and be in the hospital because my life is just way too busy. I, I'll have to hop out of there or something, but... You know, It's just the way we are in this culture. God, God has different ideas. Verse 9, it says, He's not slack. He doesn't dawdle. He's long-suffering. Why? Because so he's, he's not willing that any should perish. Now, I want to I throw two more scriptures out at you to kind of look at this mindset, how much God really cares for the lost and does want them to turn. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, just one verse, he said, He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Ezekiel 18.23, and I could find a dozen of these, he says, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Because he knows what that means, says the Lord God. And, that not, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? So I think we get the picture that God's desire is for all men to be saved. We, we see it here. I do have to, again, as a pastor, I follow trends. And sometimes when I address these trends, it makes me very unpopular, but I have to do it anyway. Some of you know about this doctrine called double predestination, and some of you will find out. You'll hear about it, maybe from some of your loved ones. But double predestination is a a doctrine in extreme Calvinism. And what it is, is that God predestines, he creates people. He makes them, he puts a soul in them, and there are some that he just... He really likes. You know. They're the elect before the foundations of the world. He, he shows favor upon them, no real reason given. And he makes them and he elects them to salvation. And with his irresistible grace, they can't pull away from him. They're captured by his swoon. So he predestines them to eternal life. This is where it gets bad. That's an active form of predestination. The other part of that is another predestination for those majority of the world who don't take the right path, don't come to salvation. He creates them. He puts, now this isn't true. Okay. It's not biblical. I'm just telling you what it is. I don't believe this. He uh, creates them, puts a soul in them. They're the majority of the people on the earth. And what happens is he uh, keeps them from being regenerated. He predestines them to eternal damnation. Now in extreme Calvinism, that's also active in Another form of Calvinism, which isn't so extreme, it's more passive, where God just kind of passes by and he doesn't get them out of that state. But in extreme Calvinism, he puts them in that state and holds them there. Now, the Bible says that the word is regenerative. So even if they read the word, it isn't going to change them. It's not scriptural. And what it does is it makes God, if I could just say this in a worldly sense, he creates somebody to put them on a cliff where they're dangling with hell below them, and then he either looks at them and walks by them, or he pushes them off the edge. They're not the ones that I like. That's pre- you can look it up. You don't have to take my word for it. But what it does is it makes God a liar in his word. So he really wills that all men to be saved, but he does things actively to prevent them from being saved. So it's kind of a wink-wink with the scripture, and then behind the scenes, he's doing things to prevent their salvation. Not scriptural. Makes God a liar and an executioner. And if you think about it, If you find yourself rejecting God's way of salvation and you find yourself in damnation or judgment right now, the truth is you put yourself there. You have the choice to come to Christ. You have the choice to have your sins forgiven. This doctrine tells us that the responsibility now leaves man and puts it on God. So God is the one who did this. Whereas we know the scripture says that if we find ourselves in judgment, it's because we did it because we continue to reject him with the free will that God has given us. So understand that. Now, listen, I'll have lunch with anybody and fellowship with anybody. And, you know, I have friends that believe this and I love them, but I say, look, from the pulpit, I'm going to tell my folks to watch out for this stuff because that doctrine is weird, sorry. If you still want to be my friend, that's great. But, and I can do that, you know, just letting you know beforehand. So we know that his will is not any that should perish. Verse 10, it says, the Lord's return will be as a thief in the night. And when that comes, things will unfold rather quickly. So what we have here is that this time discussion again. And there's a lot of questions. We see it in Thessalonians. We see the day of the Lord in Amos. We see really the day of the Lord and the Lord's return all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Pretty wild stuff. And you say, well, what comes first? And, you know, we understand that the Lord comes in 1 Thessalonians 4. For his, uh, you know, for those who've accepted him, he comes for them on the earth. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Uh, Then he comes back in a second coming where he actually touches down on the earth, the Mount of Olives, and he comes back to make war and judgment. So we see these things happen, but really, it's understood as his basic return. However, it starts is this kind of Day of the Lord thing. But things will unfold quickly. Now, why does God? What do you think God doesn't tell us when he's going to return? Right? I mean. What would we do if we knew that January 1st of 2011, at about 6 o'clock in the morning, the Lord, the train was coming. You know, the Lord comes, woo, get on board. He's got the conductor hat. Why do you think he doesn't tell us? The answer is because then these conversions would not be genuine. That's what I think. Could be wrong. Because he doesn't want us the night before or the week before or the month before or the year before, you know, being good little kids, right? And basically, we're just manipulating him. So he doesn't tell us. What he tells us to do is to live a godly and pure life, to be holy, for I am holy, he says. Not to wait around staring at the sky, waiting for him to appear through the clouds. But he will come as a thief in the night, right? and, and many will be caught by surprise. Now, I love science. I still have a lot of my science books from college, and the funny thing is, it shows how long ago I've been in college. Some of the science has changed, believe it or not. <laughs> It's true. You know, what what men thought um, years ago, uh, a lot of the stuff has been tweaked and new theories and new ideas and discoveries have come and uh, science looks a little bit different than my college books. So I do try to update myself. But I like this because you kind of see a scientific... Now remember, Peter's a fisherman and according to the religious leaders, he was an uneducated fisherman and untrained. So check this out. Look what he says here. Let's look at the tail end of the day of the Lord... And again, we we covered this in our Revelation study and see how the events unfold, starting with verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We see a few things. The heavens pass with a great noise. Verse 10, the elements melt with fervent heat. Uh, Verse 10, the earths and the works in it are burned up. And verse 12, the heavens are dissolved, being on fire. A lot of references with fire. Now, this isn't figurative fire. If you go to the Greek, this is literal fire. This is heat. This is fire. This is intense. Now, when I look at this... The heavens will pass with a great noise. That reminds me of percussion. Percussion from, you saw our drummer, you know, doing the percussion, right? Creating sound waves and compressing them and things like that. But when you have a major release of energy, you have this massive, you know, compression of of everything around it and you get shock waves. You get this percussion. So it's quite possibly that the resultant noise from that percussion is with a major explosion, Sounds to me like nuclear fission. Now, this is an idea that it's, it's very interesting. It doesn't mean it's exactly how it's going to happen. But let's go through this. If you look at the four forces in, na- in nature, uh, one is the strong nuclear force. Now, what that does is, and you can, this is still good science, you see in, in the atom, the nucleus, there's protons and neutrons. And the protons have a positive charge. How do you get those protons to get so close together without being repulsed by each other? Positive charges uh, repel. Well, we know that there's mesons in between the protons, and they try to explain it by all these ways, but the strong nuclear force holds like positive charges inside the nucleus. There's some explainability to it, but it, it really doesn't do it justice. It's still a mystery. The other force, the other uh, of, the, of the four, which I'm only gonna cover two, is the electromagnetic force, which discusses the relationship between charged particles. So the, you have your electrons you know, whizzing around, orbiting the nucleus of the atom, and in our bodies we have millions and billions of these. It's pretty amazing. And then you have the uh, positively charged nucleus with the electron whizzing around it, and it doesn't suck it in. So there's, you've got your electromagnetic force. So I'm just kind of setting it up here. When you disturb those relationships, you get fission. Now, we, uh, in trying to, and man has done this, we did it with nuclear weapons and nuclear reactors, we'll you will, um, shoot at high speeds a particle into the nucleus and cause it to, uh, to break apart, and you have this incredible release of energy and heat. So what you find here is that, and, and I would say this, I don't think that the world is gonna burn with nuclear weapons, now. Nah. That's man's idea. Besides, the way the exchange, it's just not feasible. This is a wholesale burning of this planet. So I believe that God supernaturally does it, and and, and I'll tell you how. According to the Bible, what we can't explain on the atomic level is explained in Colossians 1.17. It says that all things, in Christ, all things consist. And the word in Greek is sunastao, which means literally held together. So the Lord is kind of like the glue that holds all creation together. And what we have here is verse 10 when it says, The elements will melt with fervent heat. The word for elements in the Greek is stoichion. If you know science, there's a branch of, of uh, chemistry and um, there's a branch, of, a branch of science called stoichiometry, which actually comes from this Greek word. Pretty fascinating. And it really means like the elements on the lowest level, probably to mean atoms. Not bad for an unlearned fisherman, right? I mean, doesn't this sound some of you, your eyes are rolling in the back of your heads right now. Oh, I wish he'd stop. <laughs> that reminds me of high school. <laughs> or the college courses I didn't do too good in. <laughs> Listen, it's either an unlearned fisherman, he didn't have an electron microscope. There are things he did not have, and he said this. Or it's the Holy Spirit. Another picture of how God can take, you know, oh the Bible's not scientific. What I would challenge somebody to do when they say something like that is ask them to read it from cover to cover. It'll serve two purposes. (laughs) And point out the parts that are not... Because usually when I challenge somebody, oh, really, what's the part that you're referring to? Give it to me. Well, well, you know, I've heard. Usually that's what you get. So uh, pretty fascinating stuff for an unlearned fisherman. The heavens, verse 12, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. Now, the word for dissolve, luo, means to literally let go. So because of something being let go, there's a fire that's a resultant factor from that. That Sounds like everything being let go is pretty amazing. We have no idea this morning, brothers and sisters, how God holds us together. I have no idea. There's enough uh, nuclear energy in your pinky to probably run a submarine. But God had set it up in such a way that everything works together. You understand? It is fascinating when you study science, you study the Bible, you see how God has it all under control. Brothers and sisters, we have no idea how God holds us together. Right? It's pretty amazing in itself. And I would say this, that if God can use this unlearned and educated fisherman, don't think that God can't use you. You know, and I believe there are some people that come to me and say, you know, I don't, I don't think I have any gifts. I don't, you know, my life is a mess, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, man, don't sell yourself short. Usually the ones that God has a problem with are the prideful ones, the ones who think they're going to waltz into God's heaven and say, I'm going to fix this place up for you. I, I'm a pretty bright guy. I think you really need me on board. Here's my team of friends. He laughs at those people. If you think that, you, you know, you're frail and you're, you, you don't have much to, don't, don't sell yourself short because God can do great. He used all these guys. A lot of these guys were, by the world standards, failures. And I will tell you this, that on a personal note, when I first started preaching six years ago, God bless some of you who actually listened to it for the, the first few years. <laughs> Maybe you still feel that way now, I don't know, but um, I remember going up there and being so nervous. Brrr, 15 minutes, the sermon was done. Everybody was like, <laughs> you like that one, James, huh? <laughs> and the children's ministry, like we didn't even finish our lesson. What are you doing? So the bottom line is, listen, I, we can't take ourselves so seriously. We really can't. You got to laugh, right? And, uh, you know, if you, if you're, If you just want to serve the Lord and you don't think you have such great talents, you're in the right place. You know, let him use you. If he could use Peter and me and everybody else and Pastor Luis a few weeks ago, he can use you. Now that we know this, what do we do? What's the result? How should we live? Behave, conduct ourselves with holy conduct and godliness. In Matthew 24, again, this picture of being expectant for the Lord, for the master to return. In Matthew 24, you had the faithful servant versus the wicked servant. And the wicked servant beat his fellow uh, servants and he you know, ran the house amok and uh, the master came in and he was punished for it. As believers, let's be those expectant servants. Live the way God has called us to live and just to be excited about what he's done. Uh, Verse 13, it says, according to his promises, remember, remember God's promises, look forward to the new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. And again, this is the true believers versus the mockers. What camp are we in? Are we really God's children? If we are, we do look forward to him. We look forward to his promises. We know that we're just passing through here. We're loosely tethered to this world, so to speak. And he says to be diligent about it. When we stop and think, can I ask myself, am I diligent about these things? Am I diligent about reading the Bible and applying the Bible to my life? Diligence is important. Again, we believe in him. We look forward to his promises. Our behavior and our lifestyles change. We stay loosely tethered to this world. And we build up treasures in heaven. We have some on earth, but really that's not the focus. And the journey here in the meantime is with hope and delight, knowing it's only going to get better. That's a huge perspective check. See, it's so cool. I mean, I look at this and, uh, you know, we live a lifestyle of peace, not fake peace, but because it comes from the inside, of blamelessness, not sinlessness, but, you know, just living a life where that can't be pointed out to say, gee, you're really not living a Christian life. Um, Godliness, which is a reflection of our Savior, and being a light to a terrified world out there. Just on a side note, people are afraid. Right, the the um, you know the, the political climate is very heated. I've never seen a point in my life where they've been so at each other's throats. Uh, there's some ideas. There's lack of ideas. There's uh, not knowing how to with the financial institutions and the wars overseas. And now there's a report that we're paying off the Taliban. It's just getting crazy. It's just it's just madness in the world. Nobody really knows how to solve this. So we really need to. I don't want to use the word capitalize, but take advantage in a sense where we want to show others who don't know the Lord, give them that hope that we have, that we should have. This, this world is not our own. And sometimes I even meditate on how big the universe, and listen, we, we went through the, the universe and what God's going to do and how he's going to you know, destroy the, the, the heavens and the earth and make it perfect again. And, and sometimes we have to look at me, how small I am and how big God is, and really that in itself should give us comfort. Verse 15, excuse me, verse yeah, 14, let's, wait, let's start with 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent and be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in... In them things these of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now untaught obviously using used in a different sense. The long suffering of the world is salvation. This is really the wrap up of what we're saying. In the end, we're gonna see the results of God's long suffering. We're gonna see the effects of salvation on those because of God waiting so long. We're going to see even God's patience in our lives in dealing with our issues. We're going to see the results of that. And Peter said of Paul, meaning the Apostle Paul, this is pretty amazing. He said, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote many things, many of which have been twisted. And when I stop and think about it, I go, yeah, a lot of the Apostle Paul's epistles have been twisted over the years, haven't they? And it's a shame because Paul is describing his, his love for the Lord and his explanation of God's deep love and salvation, and others have capitalized on that. And those that twist it are often ignorant or unstable. And it's a person who uh, has to, maybe something to prove, and I've said this before, listen, I'm, I'm quite okay to be uh, just preaching God's word, nothing new and fangled and, and fancy, and just saying, listen, this is God's word, this is what we're gonna stay with from the pulpit. Yeah, but those churches are going with this author, and those churches are doing this new thing. I'm just gonna stay where, where God's word is, if it, you know, and, and that's where I'm gonna stay. And they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Patience there too. Uh, God will deal with those who are leading others astray. Last few verses before we close. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So you, therefore, beloved, now this word is used the second time in this chapter, agape tas, where agape is love. He really had love for these uh, people as, as sheep. Uh, and, and these are, again, his last spoken words but probably public before his death. He says this, make sure you not name a street after me, not do a bio on me, not uh, fashion a sculpture of me. These are the things he left with the believers that he loved and us too. Number one, since you know these things beforehand, we're getting fair warning. And we certainly can't say we didn't know. Even if you've walked into this church for the first time, you're hearing God's word. You will be accountable for what you've heard. It's been, I think it's been explained in a, in a very understandable manner. Right? We know these things beforehand. Number two, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Be careful of self-delusion, pride. Oh, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm great. I've arrived. Really? You know, if we have that idea, then we're really, we're, something's wrong there. It's self-delusion. Three, being led away with the error of the wicked. Again, personal responsibility in any relationship, especially God. Right, sticking with what Peter says, sticking with the prophets, sp- sticking with what the apostles laid down in the foundation of the church, not going off on some newfangled thing or, or just having that willful ignorance or forgetfulness. I will tell you that I've seen many trade eternity for earthly slop. And when we die, that's all it's going to be is earthly slop. Nothing will compare to what God has for us. And fourth, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And hopefully that's why we're here. The more we learn about him, the more we love him, the more we have a relationship with him. Let's pray.